Welcome to the fire. Welcome to the fire, boys. My name is Parker McDonald. And I'm Walter Lee, and we'll be your hosts on this episode of the Southern Collective Hunting Podcast. If you're a new hunter trying to learn the basics, or you're a veteran woodsman just trying to get through your workday, there's always a place at our campfire for you. Speaking of the fire, we would love it if you guys would join our growing Patreon community and be a part of the best and only digital deer camp south of Mason Dixon Line. Come on. If you'd like and learn more, click on the link in the show notes. But for now, Walt, welcome, welcome to, to the fire. fire. All right, guys, uh, welcome back to another edition of the Southern Collective Podcast. This is your turkey edition. This will be full-fledged turkey uh, this go-round. And uh, so sorry, deer hunters. You know, it's it's still well in the middle of deer season for a lot of people. And uh, I know over here at SoCo, especially the Patreon uh, group, they have been stacking deer all season long. I don't know. We I think we've broken the, the 100 uh, body count mark uh from all the patreons so these uh these guys get after it um they've learned a lot uh we learn a lot from each other uh chit-chatting every day and people are able to apply what they learn and be successful in uh in every aspect archery rifle hunting traveling and hunting out of state and all that other good stuff so uh there's a good plug for our patreon and uh, we got a couple other things we need to mention here before we get into our interview with Jeremy French today. Um, as you all know, uh, by now, you know, we are uh, supported by Tethered. And since this is the uh, the turkey, one of the turkey episodes, we got to mention their M2 vest. And uh, I, uh, I had my eye on this vest ever since I saw it last year. I think it was at NWTF that they first released it. And... Ever since then, you know, it caught my eye and I wanted to get my hands on one and I hope to uh, hope to do that before springtime. Um, and the M2 vest, it's made in America. Uh, it's fully modular, fully customizable. Um, put anything you want on there. I think they've got a bird bag. they got a little backpack that can go on the back of it. Uh, either or uh, works great for turkey season, obviously, but I've seen uh, seen some guys wear it during deer season. Some of those minimalist guys that uh, just need a little vest. Um, and so they're knocking around in it this fall. Uh, and it does come in bottom land, you know, America's colors there. Um, so, uh, check out tethered, uh, when you get done, uh, with deer season or you got deer off your mind already, go check out the M2 vest. Um, uh, another, uh, another company that's, uh, supporting us, uh, Joiner Die Knives, um, had some experience with Joiner Die Knives this spring in Montana. Parker came out there with uh, Jacob and I and uh, killed a handful of turkeys. And I got to use some of their knives on the, when uh, we were dressing those turkeys and they're phenomenal. Um, lightweight, hold, hold a nice edge. Um, they're portable. Um, you know, we, we traveled with them. So it was easy to stick in a bag, check bag, uh, stick in our vest. Um, they are, they're just excellent knives. Um, you use the pro, promo code SOCO Hunt. That's all caps S O C O H O U N T. Uh, get ten percent off there. Um, and again, these are just custom quality knives. Uh, that the the quality is high enough. You could probably pass these on to your kids. So uh, go check those guys out. Uh, last but not least, Honeycomb Custom Calls. Um, if you guys remember uh, the handful of calls that that uh, Walter uh, released last year. Uh, the JB special uh, and a couple other ones that were really successful. Uh, Honeycomb's coming back this year. 
uh, and uh, supporting the podcast. Uh, Honeycomb, as everybody knows by now, uh, quality small batch turkey calls uh, designed by the turkey fanatic himself uh, for all the rest of us turkey fanatics. Um, and uh, we're going to have some new calls this spring. Uh, we're going to keep the JB special. I'm pretty confident uh, that seems to be pretty popular, but we got some uh, some more collaborative calls coming out probably in the next couple of months, uh, including maybe a pot call or two. So you guys keep your eyes out for that. So anyway, we uh, we got Jeremy French uh, on with us today, and I asked Jeremy to Jeremy to come on here because this time of year, um, starting you know I guess starting around Christmas or New Year's, you know that switch really flips for a lot of for a lot of guys. Some of the more fair weather turkey uh, turkey hunters uh, when they get done deer hunting, they start thinking about turkey hunting. And one of the things that I really start seeing uh, across social media are uh, are people doing you know, burns, prescribed burns particularly. And that just uh, gave me the idea. I was like, well, you know, those uh, those guys are going to be planning their burns and planning some habitat projects. So who better else to come on here and kind of tell us how um, some of these private landowners can kind of get things started. You know, coming from a private landowner myself, uh, one of the biggest hurdles was just that first step, like how, what do I even do? How do I even go about getting a good habitat on my property? And my farm, like many farms across the Southeast, uh, was primarily cattle farm. I had some row crops here and there. Uh, so it was just a lot of fescue grass. Um, and, uh, my, my dad, my 80 year old dad, he, uh, he liked to mow it every year. He liked it to look nice. And I finally convinced him a few years ago to quit mowing. Uh, so, and then we had a, a, whole bunch of broom sedge uh just everywhere and then i finally convinced him to let me burn that thing and so my first my first step was to call jeremy because i know jeremy personally uh but jeremy's on here he's going to tell us about how uh to get things started uh for uh for anybody looking to improve the habitat on the property so without further ado here's jeremy uh jeremy french uh give us a little bit of your background and uh what you do these days yeah, so uh, my name's Jeremy French. Like Joey said, I am the director of stewardship for the Southeastern Grasslands Institute here, based out of Clarksville, Tennessee. Um, I've worked in in the Mid South now for about five years. Previously, I was a wildlife biologist um, for Quail Forever and the Southeastern Grasslands Institute, um, working predominantly on private land, um, restoring grasslands um, all throughout the Southeast and. Um, I've worked in the wildlife field my my whole career. Um, some people call me uh, a plant person, I guess, um, but I, I'm really interested in all factors of of really managing and restoring habitat, both on private and and public land. Excellent, excellent. And I've I've kind of preached this for years now that private land habitat is a, should be of major concern for most everybody, and especially when at least here in the southeast, when your your state lands or your public lands, your publicly accessible or public public hunting lands consist of less than ten percent of the entire uh, state, then the focus should be you know private land habitat because it's you know you got you have to focus on the majority uh, to really make a difference. Uh, if you have just if if you have a hundred acres and you're and the state is only able to uh, improve or con or conserve you know. 10, 10 of those acres, then you're not really doing a whole lot. 
So private land habitat is a, is a huge deal. Um, so let's kind of get down to it. So what, um, since we're going to, since we're going to talk about turkeys, Jeremy kind of tell us what are some requirements for good turkey habitat? Kind of what is a small checklist there? Yeah. So what's really interesting about this is we're at a cool kind of transitional phase in the Southeast between realizing that historically we had um, really, really good Turkey habitat. And I'm talking about pre-settlement probably about 50% of, of the Southeast um, somewhere in there was a matrix between open savannas and woodlands. And when you ask me, Hey, what's good Turkey habitat? I'm going to say, man, if I could go hunt anywhere, I'm going to go find some open savannas and woodlands. Well, what does that mean? Right? So in those open savannas and woodlands, you, you meet all the criteria for good Turkey habitat. First, we've got some amount of trees, right? We've got good roosting trees. Those trees provide escape cover. Those trees provide roost. Those trees provide um, resting areas for midday. Those trees also provide food. Um, That's one of the key components of obviously turkey habitat. Anybody who's hunted turkeys, we've all roosted birds before. And we we know, you know, they're going to be in those trees. The, the next part of the turkey habitat becomes more difficult. I think in the, in the southeast, we've become accustomed to walking through forests, um, unnatural forests, to look for birds, and even sometimes hunting birds in, in true closed canopy forests. But that's not really turkey habitat. They'll utilize those spaces, but that's not turkey habitat. The, the next step is really good um, nesting cover. And for that nesting cover, you need lateral coverage and and aerial coverage. And what I mean by that is you need that savanna open woodland structure where you do have trees and shrubs providing cover from the air to avoid predation. But you also have that lateral cover of grasses and forbs where a turkey can hide and nest. Um, I, you know, I see all the time the the same thing happened. A, a private landowner come to me and they're interested in Turkey. And then I'll go out there and we'll look at all of their open areas. And there's this, this split, right? So we have our forest and their forest comes right up to the edge of this field. And then they have a mow line at that field. Really, we're taking the two best parts of Turkey habitat there and destroying it. You know, um, they really need that ground cover, um, they're ground nesting birds. They need that escape cover. And we need these this in the biggest blocks available. Now, if we're talking about private lands, maybe a big block for you is one or two acres, or maybe, you know, it's 10 acres. But whatever we can get that habitat on a larger scale possible, it's going to increase, what you know, occupancy. It's going to increase, you know, nest success. It's going to do, do really good things. And then that last part is going to be brooding, right? We, we need these insect-rich environments um, for turkey poults to exist in. And that brood cover needs to be close to all these other covers, right? Um, and so, again, we get back into that picture of a savanna, you know, where we need all these flowers and grasses that are providing nectar resource for bugs, for all these poults to, to, to feed on constantly. And then that is close to, you know, roosting trees. It's close to, to good cover. 
Um, so really, what I like to paint the picture of um, uh, in people's mind when we talk about turkey habitat is picture a savanna. Picture a, a savanna where you have 10 to 15 large mature trees per acre, and then the, the ground layer is dominated by um, forbs, so flowers and grasses and you know some shrubs and stuff like that. That is ideal turkey habitat. Now, me as an ecologist, I've always come at how we restore habitat from the perspective of somewhat historical. So I'm going to look at most areas in the Mid-South and say, hey, this should be X. You know, it should be a savanna. It should be a prairie. Um, prairies are also great um, turkey habitat as long as you, you can get the you roost trees involved. Um but some people will say, hey, you know, I only own true mesic forest. What what can I do there? And you're kind of in a little bit of a catch-22. But I would say the last portion of turkey habitat is that wintering habitat. So in the winter, we see a shift of occupancy where turkeys go from predominantly being out in these open grassy um, areas um, and you know, savannas, prairies, um, woodlands, and they shift more to wanting to be in woodlands and forest. So having that, that uh, I guess, scale of habitats in your, on your farm and you can, or on your property or on your state land, you can figure that out, right? You could say, okay, I've got 100 acres of closed canopied forest. And on 20 to 30 of those acres, I'm going to cut those down to where I have 10 to 15 mature trees per acre. And then on 20 of those acres, I'm going to leave it a little bit thicker with trees. And then on the last percent of those acres, I'm going to leave it true forest. And then you encompass essentially all the year's needs of that turkeys, that, that turkey's habitat. Now, does that mean that turkey's never going to leave your farm? Absolutely not. Um, but you are providing very valuable refugia um, and nesting habitat, broody habitat to really lift the, 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 the flock in your area um, to, to be able to sustain more birds. Got it. Now, you know, we're, we're still going to uh, kind of stay on turkeys primarily, but I did want to mention or get some more information. I think it was NWTF many years ago uh, that kind of coined the phrase, what's good for the bird is good for the herd. Does that ring true, you know, in your experience, you know, when you're trying to make good turkey habitat, does that still benefit so many more game and non-game animals? Absolutely. And I, I would take that um, even a step forward at, at further at times, I would say what's good for the ecosystem is good for the herd and the bird. Um, if we're managing you know, especially in the Southeast, if we're managing that savanna habitat and that open habitat. I mean, we're benefiting bats. We're benefiting pollinators in these open savanna systems. When we think about like deer, for example, there's about a thousand pounds of forage for a deer in that per acre. If we compare that forage load to a closed canopied forest, an unmanaged, unnatural closed canopy forest, there's probably about a hundred pounds of food um, per acre. Now that's that's a stark difference. All the time in deer hunting uh, and deer management, we talk about the need, the number one factor, um, other than genetics for antler growth, is nutrition. Well, if you're telling me that I can, you know, have this open habitat that's got a thousand pounds 
of food per acre. And I'm not putting seed out there, right? I'm not food plotting it. A thousand pounds of food per acre versus this habitat that has a hundred pounds of food per acre. I'm going to choose a thousand pounds all day. Um, so in, in that way, we can have, you know, our cake and eat it too. If we've got really good turkey habitat in these, in incorporating these open savannas and these open woodlands and these open spaces, we're going to have really good deer habitat. We're going to have quail habitat. We're going to have, you know, great pollinator habitat, you know, bird, uh, bird habitat other than um, quail and turkey. We're, we're going to have great bat habitat there. It's going to encompass so much of that, that we're missing in the Southeast from an area. You know, when I say the Southeast, I consider it, you know, about a 24 state region. But when we consider that probably about 50% of that area used to historically be what we'd call Savannah, right? 10 to 15 trees per acre, open grassy understory full of flowers, you know, uh, another 10 to 15, 20% was true open prairie, right? So now we're sitting at like 60, 65% entirely open. And then the rest of it was a mix of forests and, you know, wetlands and, and stuff like that. Well, when I say now, we've lost about 99% of that open habitat. It's fescue fields, it's crop fields, it's closed canopy forests. When you, we, when we ask, you know, what's good turkey habitat or why are turkey numbers falling or um, any of those questions that, you know, um, you, you and I are friends, Joey, so I'll send you them sometimes, you know, screenshots of like, oh, yeah, it's this or it's that. In reality, the biggest, you know, factor facing turkeys or facing a lot of wildlife in the southeast is that we've lost that open habitat. And we're focusing too much on solving all these other issues when really what we need to be doing is restoring those fescue fields and restoring those closed can- unnatural closed canopy forests um, and recreating um, all this open habitat that's going to be good for turkeys, that's going to be great for deer, um, and it's going to be great for all the non-game species as well. Right on. So we've kind of we've kind of covered, you know, what entails good habitat and why, you know, great habitat is important. So let's kind of get started uh, with, uh, you know, a landowner's perspective. How how do I how do I start this? How do I start this process? And, uh, you know, my first step or my first thought was I need some help, obviously, because I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, I had an idea about what good habitat, you know, should be, uh, but I needed somebody to, you know, tell me what actually needed to be done uh, and what steps needed to be uh, taken to, uh, you know, to complete proper habitat project. And there are several organizations out there. uh, I'm going to rattle off a few and correct me if I'm wrong, um, that will assist landowners in, you know, whatever habitat goals uh, that's on uh, that they have for their property. Uh, the Southeast Grasslands uh, Institute, obviously, you know who uh, who you work for. Uh, there's also Quail Forever, uh, National Wild Turkey Federation. There's Turkeys for Tomorrow. Uh, there's the uh, the CRP programs that we're familiar with. Um, are there any other uh, off the top of your head that you can think of uh, that we need to add to this list? This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. 
Altacovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tacovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Um, the, the, that's a, a tough one. Every state kind of has different organizations that work a lot in private land. But for the most part, all of those organizations are going to work through this one organization, which is NRCS, um, which is sits under the USDA. Every county has in the U.S. has NRCS um, operating within that county. Now, the office may not be in that county, but it, it's somewhere you know pretty close by. Those guys are the ones who essentially run the CRP programs. They run all the cost share programs that are utilized on private land. And me, when I was a Quail Forever biologist, even now, if if Joey calls me up and says, hey, I want to do habitat project on, on, my, um, on my property, I'm going to go ahead and come out and visit and, you know, walk through those steps. But largely, where that money is going to come from, if Joey can't fund himself, is going to be NRCS. Um, the, all those organizations, Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, has done a wonderful job working within NRCS across the country. They have something like 500 biologists now that work private land. We work a lot here at the Southeastern Grasslands Institute with NRCS and, and those practice codes. I know... Um, um, National Turkey Federation does um, all these agencies. We're tied into to NRCS. So if 
first step I would say is see if there's some biologists working in your area. You know, just Google all the state biologists. For example, all the private lands TWA biologists in Tennessee also work with NRCS. And if you can't find something, to, someone to reach out to, the next step I would go is just walk into your local NRCS office, figure out where it is and walk in and say, hey, my name's Joey Bell. I own this property. I'm, I want to do some habitat improvement. And in that office, if they don't have an expert on wildlife habitat or a wildlife person, they will know who to call. They will be the person that says, hey, we're going to get this person out on this visit because that's really their specialty. Those guys are the go-between and really are great at connecting landowners to people who are the experts in that field. And they're really good at finding ways, creative ways, to get landowners paid for these habitat projects. I'm not always about, you know, I work with a lot of landowners who don't want to get paid. They just want to do it. They're still going to help you the same. And all these biologists, Quail Forever, Southeastern Grasslands Institute, um, NWTF, any biologist that works on private lands, they're going to help you whether or not you want to get paid for it. <laughs> um, oftentimes, it's easier for me to help you if you don't want to get paid for it. Um, so first step, I would just figure out on your state website where there's biologists. And if there's none, reach out to NRCS and then just go from there. Got it. Now, the um, correct me if I'm wrong, the primary uh, method of uh, regenerating that natural uh, historical habitat is probably prescribed burns. Would you say that's correct? Like when you when you evaluate a property, is that more than likely the first step at least? That that's probably always going to be at least a step. It might not be the first step. Mm. You know, if you have a fescue field, it's probably not going to be the first step, but um, it's going to be a step. Returning natural fire to the landscape is going to be a step to managing any habitat. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. Burning, uh, burning is a hot topic um, all across, you know, the Southeast, um, especially in the last handful of years when the the turkey population uh, discussion has really come around and habitat is at the forefront of, uh, of that discussion too. And so you're seeing more and more involvement, uh, with burning and, uh, and just habitat improvements. But I kind of wanted to focus on burning because, uh, like myself, I had zero clue about what to do regarding a burn. Uh, I was confident that my farm probably needed some burning, um, to, uh, to kind of get things going around there. And so I want to focus on, you know, what, what we go to, you go to a farm. Okay. We need to do a prescribed fire. Um, what do we need to burn? When do we need to burn it? As far as, you know, seasons, spring, summer, fall, uh, does it make a difference in, uh, in your goals and what you're really trying to do, uh, when you burn and also how often, uh, are we burning there? So kind of cover, uh, those three things, when to burn, what to burn and how often. Yeah. So I would say, Again, this this is going to vary farm to farm, but a very ten thousand foot foot layer is most ecosystems in the southeast are what we'd call pyrophytic ecosystems, and what that means is they evolved with fire or to utilize fire. Um, 
any of those ecosystems, open savannas, open fields, prairies, um, woodlands, they need fire to stay in good health. So, and they need fire in the right season. So I'll start with when to burn. Of all our history and all recordable data in the Southeast, the natural fire season for the Southeast is from about September to mid-February. That is the A-plus window of when to burn. 99% of fire historically, going back hundreds of years, whether it was natural fire, which definitely occurred all throughout the Southeast, or it was native lit fire that occurred all throughout the Southeast, that fire happened in that window. And, you know, so much time, you know, you could read books of early settlers talking about like the autumn fires and the fall fires and the winter fires where all the prairie grass died or dried and and burned. That is is your window. About 1% or 2% of fire historically occurred outside that window. Now, you can use fire as a tool, but 99% of the time when I go to recommend a burn, I'm going to recommend that burn in that window. And it's for a lot of reasons. Um, one, we we have the least amount of negative effect on all the critters out there. Anytime we're doing habitat augmentation, there's an equal opposite reaction. In the winter, you know, most of your ground living critters are, are either hibernating or they're hiding or they're under. So we're not going to have a big kill off there. Um, we're not going to have a big kill off of pollinators. Obviously, birds aren't nesting. Um, so there's a bunch of positives to burning throughout the winter. And on top of that, we don't have to get too deep into the weeds. When we talk about trying to restore historic habitat, we now live in a world where everything is over nitrogen, right? Uh, every farm field, every fescue field, it's got more nitrogen in the soil than it historically had. A lot of these open areas, you know, I deal with a lot of people that say, well, if I just let this grow up, it explodes to trees. Well, the problem is that there's too much nitrogen in that soil now, and it historically wasn't there. So how do we remedy that? The way we remedy that is we burn in the winter. What that, what that does is, one, everything above ground that turns black, that has a little bit of nitrogen in it. But because we're burning in winter, that's our wet season, it will run off that creek um, and blow off into other areas before it is taken into the soil. One of the number one causes of an increasing nitrogen in soil from a habitat perspective is spring burning or summer burning. It's from root sloughing. So when we burn these prairie grasses or these savannas, largely the nitrogen adding is going to come by killing plants and then the roots then dropping off and decomposing into the soil. When we burn in the winter, 90% of those plants are dormant. They're not going to drop any roots or very little roots. And we're long-term able to start kind of restabilizing that system. So often what we get, and this kind of gets into how often when I'm restoring a place, the first couple of years, it's going to blow up into trees. It's going to be a sweet gum or, or sycamore. It's just going to be kind of crap. Once we start getting a series of burns through, we're going to start knocking it down and knocking it down, knocking it down. So for most projects, I'm looking at a one to three year burn return interval. And that means that if I'm burning, you know, um, 2023, I'm looking at coming back in 24, 25 and hitting it again. And we might continue that return interval 
for five to 10 years. Um, the other key component to that is anytime I recommend burning on a site, I'm only going to burn half of their available habitat, uh, especially in the southeast where we have highly fragmented landscapes. Um, you might have the only good habitat for 50 miles. So we don't want to eliminate all of that habitat in one burn. So we're going to burn 50% of your habitat one year. The following year, we'll jump to the other 50% and we'll keep bouncing back and forth. So just, just to recap at 10,000 feet, we're looking at burning in the winter from or fall and winter from about September to February. That's our A plus season. Um, that avoids mortality. It really helps fix nitrogen. It helps knock back trees. It does a lot of really good things for us. We're only looking at burning really half of your habitat or half of, of what you have available or a specific habitat type in one single year. And then we're on top of that looking at about a one or two to three year return interval when weather allows. So we're trying to get back that and hit that with a successive burns. In a lot of the Southeast, that was the burn interval return. It was, you know, somewhere between one and five years and most pyrophytic systems in the Southeast burn. So we're trying to get back to that natural state. We accelerated a little bit. Once your area is stable or what, what a biologist or I would consider stable, where you're not having these big blowups of trees, you're not um, having a lot of issues, then we might back off a little bit and say, okay, we want a three to five year return. But generally I walk onto a site we're looking at, at hitting it hard and often half the site every year until we've got it to a good, good point. Great. That's excellent information. So let's, uh, let's say that someone is leasing a property. Like you, maybe you're not a landowner, but you have access to private property and you want, you're trying to convince the landowner to create better habitat on that property. Because, you know, the, the farm or the, the property that you're hunting is uh, just like you described earlier, a lot of fescue, uh, just an old farm, uh, working farm. But you're having a hard time convincing the landowner to burn. They just, I don't know, they're either uneducated, they, did, they don't know anything about it, never done it, no experience, um, whatever the reason, no burning on the property. What are some options for uh, for habitat uh, work then? Like, is there herbicide, uh, mowing, disking? Do you plant? Some, are, are, are you able to plant uh, anything? Like, what are options other than burning? So uh, my, my first option other than burning is generally going to be haying. So if we look at, like, the states in the south that have the best grassland habitat, which is turkey habitat, we're going to look at states like Arkansas, right? They have the best grassland remnants left around. Um, you know, there's parts of it that aren't great, but when we're talking about 99% loss, they're maybe at 97% loss. So I've got to paint the right picture here. The fields that have maintained in suitable habitat for the longest are hay fields, native hay fields. So they didn't plant fescue in them. We're not talking about a fescue hay field. We're talking about native hay fields where every summer they go and cut hay off. Now, from a habitat perspective, I'm not going to have the same haying regime as if I was trying to make money off of it. I always want my guys to make a little bit of money off of it, but not a ton. So if I'm going to say I can't burn on a property, what's my next way to keep this area open, to keep this area in good habitat? I'm going to say like an, an August haying 
is really good. And what that does is you still have some amount of forage value in in your hay, right? It hasn't completely gone, gone to crab yet. But also, you've avoided primary and the majority of secondary nesting season. Your your poults and, and your grassland birds should be able to flush and fly by now. Um, and you're able to reset that vegetation. Now, I treat that the same as I treat fire. I'm only ever going to hay half a site in a year. Um, we're going to be really cautious. But haying half of a site, especially if you have, like, we've seen it, a really rank broom sedge field or a really rank, you know, native field that's starting to get pretty woolly. You're not seeing the flowers in it. You're not seeing the colors. It's just grass. That resets it really good. And then it still has enough time to respond for winter so that you still have winter cover out there. So you're setting it back for two to three weeks with that haying, but it's going to explode back and you're still going to have winter flower, uh, fall flowers out there. So you're still going to have winter cover. Um, that is a really good method when you can't use fire. From there, my next, like, if we can't burn and we can't hay, my next thing is going to say, okay, well, can we mow? Mowing is one of my least recommended things ever. Usually I hope we can we can answer it, solve the problem with burning or haying first. But if I have to mow, I'm going to mow like February 15th, right before green up um, and making sure that nothing's green out there, right? Because one of the big problems in the Southeast is we tend to set back all of our flowers right as they start growing. And that's your habitat. Your habitat are flowers, which this is a way for hunters to sell their wives uh, um, and other people on really enjoying wildlife habitat is we're out there trying to create flowers that that's what the mathematics comes down to. Um, so we want to, you know, February 15th, before anything's really green, any flowers are really green. We want to mow that high at like a, about a foot and just that one mowing, same thing, half the site, um, let it respond. We'll knock back a bunch of things. On the herbicide side, any mixed in with any of these, um, herbicide can be used. Um, if we're burning, so like I've got a site, a bunch of sites that I manage, that our fire hasn't done a good job of killing trees. What we're going to do is we're going to mix that fire with herbicide. So we're going to go out in the fall, um, either before or right after a burn, and we're going to treat a bunch of saplings. We're going to hack and squirt them. We're, we're going to basil bark them and really try and knock those saplings back. And that same technique can be used with fire or haying or mowing um, to knock saplings back is, is using herbicide in that manner. Now, the last thing, for the, for, for the most part, I'm almost never going to recommend disking. There are situations where disking is very, very beneficial. Um, so, like, if you were to go buy an old crop field, and you wanted to return that crop field into something that is more beneficial habitat, a disc is probably going to be your best friend um, because you're going to be able to winter disc that and really stimulate some forbs. Now, the forbs that you're going to stimulate, they are valuable to wildlife, but they are not as valuable to wildlife to, to say as if you were to have like an old prairie remnant or a savanna remnant on your site. So disking is a tool that can be used like any of these tools, making sure you're in the right setting. You got an old crop field, disk it, it's going to make it better. If you've got a prairie remnant or you already can see some flowers on your property, if you then disk it, you might lose those flowers. You you might be doing a, a bad thing. Um, 
and kind of using all those tools in conjunction to make the best thing. And I would usually say that we're in a place in the Southeast now that you don't have to make these decisions on your own. There's so many biologists across the Southeast that it doesn't hurt to check with them. And maybe you don't have enough time to have them out to your property, or maybe you don't have enough time um, to have a site visit. But I can't tell you if you were to shoot me a text or give me a call as you know, or an email, I'm going to point you in the right direction of say, Hey, if you're like, Hey, I don't have time for a site visit, but can you help me out here? I'm going to send you some resources. I'm going to send you some papers and say, Hey, this is what I would do. You can send me pictures. You can, whatever it may be. Um, a lot of the biologists in the Southeast, all the biologists were all overworked. Um, we're trying to cover so much ground. But as much as just having a conversation can put you in the right direction. And the last thing I'll say on that is if you have a landowner or you're leasing some ground or you as a landowner are afraid of fire, which I, I've encountered, fire is in, inherently dangerous. There's a lot of people who say, oh, no, it's not dangerous. I'll tell you, you know, I, I've fought some fires. Um, but I would say go work a fire. Go volunteer on a fire line. I take volunteers on pretty much all of my fires, from gauging from people who have never held a lighter in their hand to people who have been working wildland fire for 30 years. Find a crew to go volunteer on and see what it takes. And you'll realize that a lot of these fires, most fires that I work or, or do on private lands, they're boring. We're just sitting there, you know, just watching and watching and watching. If you do them the right way, they're supposed to be boring. Um... And get used to that because we've been so far removed from understanding that fire is an important part of our landscape. Just go watch some fires and then get a couple of fires under your belt and then, you know, try a fire on, on your place. Become familiar with it. Fire is the best and cheapest habitat tool that we can use in, in this country. And when we utilize fire, we are actually fighting wildfires. When we look at California or any of the wildfires we've had, here in Tennessee or the Southeast, those wildfires are happening because we have stopped those systems from burning for a hundred years. And the fuel load has accumulated so much that all it takes for a fire to rip across a thousand acres is someone's hot tire to touch it. So by managing those fuel loads on your property, you are defending your property against wildfire. Good deal. Let's kind of pivot now uh, and uh, talk about timber. Um if there are there are several properties you know that you can that you can see you know either on on x or just whatever that are primarily just hardwoods there are no pastures uh and what uh what are your suggestions for uh like timber stand improvement uh on those properties you know one go into what is timber stand improvement uh and then kind of go into um when you i guess harvest the timber off of it uh are timber prices kind of an incentive for a landowner to do some timber management? Um, what types or which trees are you removing? Which ones are you keeping? And uh, is there, does it come to a, a point where you need to plant certain trees that just aren't located on the property? Yeah. So um, there's an important distinction here, right? Um so timber stand improvement is the, the idea, the tool of going in and selectively harvesting or removing certain trees. 
to open up the canopy, but also increase the value of your timber by allowing more light to go to your, your essentially your dominant trees, your better trees, right? So you grow log faster um, and then you can harvest that log. When I look at most landowners um, and I, I, or most land, and I'm trying to think about this in the broadest perspective possible. If let's say you have a steep, steep ravine, right? That's got a Creek at the bottom um, it's a north facing slope. Largely, I'm never going to recommend any timber stand improvement in there. Um, that was likely truly a mesic forest. Um, if you really had to, at some point, you could log some of it if you were like hurting for money. But for the most part, I'm not going to recommend on those northern slopes, those steep slopes, to do really any timber stand improvement. That is the habitat it is supposed to be. And the only thing we should do in there is really control invasives. Now, most of the southeast is not that. It's these kind of rolling, undulating hills, flat surfaces. It's southern-facing slopes. It's western-facing slopes. Those are the slopes that I'm going to go in and say, okay, we should start targeting a lot of these mesophytic species. So these, these maples, um, the, these sweet gums, these species that have unnaturally uh, started to dominate these systems. So there's this this idea, you know, that's coming out of like the Ohio River Valley and a lot of the east that our forests, what most people would call forests, I'd term them woodlands, are really disappearing. And why they're disappearing is from mesification. So we're getting a lot of these sycamores and these maples and these non-fire adapted trees to walk into these systems and then they start shedding leaves and they start spreading and they shed leaves. The leaves of an oak tree burn a lot better than the leaves of a maple tree. And that's because oak trees like and require fire. Um, so there's this transition. So that's the first thing I'm going to target. I'm going to look, if I'm on a flat rolling plane, I'm going to look to target my maples. I'm going to look to target pretty much most anything that's not an oak or a, or a hickory um, or a walnut. Now, on those slopes, you know, I would start with, uh, on the, those tops, I would start with hack and squirt cut and drop i'd really just start to open it up and you at some point you have to make a decision of okay am i doing this for the ecosystem am i doing this for habitat or am i doing this for money there's overlap there for sure but you have to decide what drives you because if if you're doing it for the ecosystem which is what drives me 99 of the time i'm probably going to open it up a little bit more than if I was doing it for the money. If I'm doing it for the money, I might leave it a little bit closed, more closed to have more saw logs in there. But oftentimes what you'll have, you know, if we look at it from a micro level, is let's say you have three oak trees within 10 feet of each other. Those oak trees, all three of them, are competing with each other for resources. You're only going to be able to harvest one of them or it's going to take 100 years. So in that situation, I'm looking, okay, which oak tree do I want to keep? Which is the straightest? Which has the best form? And then I'm going to remove the other two from either hack and square or, or felling them or, or however. So you, you have all these, these interactions of, one, you don't want, it, you don't want it too many maples. You, I never recommend, if it's native, right, if it's native to your site, never remove all of them. Um, you want that diversity, but if you've got too many sycamores, too many sweet gums, start there. 
once you feel like you've got that under control and you can run fire back through that system, fire is a part of TSI, then you can start selecting what I call your champion trees. Me from a wildlife person, I'm generally as a champion tree, I'm looking for the oldest, most gnarly looking oak tree that's got the huge branching um, branches. I want the trees that can have 50 turkeys roosting in it and it's not going <laughs> to bother it. I want the trees that's going to put the most acorns off. I want the tree that's going to provide the most habitat. If you're looking from a saw log perspective, that might not be, be what you want, um, but it's, it's what I want. Um, and that's how I would go about doing that TSI is start, get your mesophytic species under tr- control then start selecting your champion trees. If you're trying to get to that that savanna area where you know mo- a lot of the southeast was, we're looking at selecting 10 to 15 trees per acre that we're going to keep. If you want more of a woodland, which we also had a lot of, which is still really great turkey habitat and good ha- habitat overall, we're looking at 20 to maybe 25 mature trees per acre. And keep that in, in mind and say, okay, what do I have to do to get there? and start making hard decisions. And once you start making those decisions on trees, the first 10, 15 trees are easy. Then you start getting to like, oh, I like this tree. I carved my name in it, or I killed a turkey under this tree, or I did this. But try and get to that number in your head and have an image of, okay, savannah, 15 trees per acre. Woodland, 20 to 30 trees per acre. And that's going to get you there and just start reducing and reducing and keeping fire returned in through there. Um, that's really good. As far as when to log or when not to log, um, that's, that's a tough question. If, if I'm doing a Savannah restoration or a woodland restoration and a log can pay for its way out of the woods, I'm going to do that 10 out of 10. Um, timber work, unless you're doing it by yourself is very expensive. Hack and squirt, um, cut and drop it's expensive unless you're doing it by yourself it's expensive to hire a crew so if i can have a log pay its way out of the woods i'm doing it and i'm going to see and coordinate with my logger for when they can best get in there usually it's in the winter um to to get those trees out of there when not to cut is like i said before if you got a northern slope if you got these big sloping landscapes that were truly historically forested i'm going to lean towards not cutting that all that's going to come back out of that is more saplings. You're going to destabilize that system. You're not going to hit your goals. But if you're in an area where you historically had some savanna, you historically had some open woodlands, um, get logs to pay their way out of the woods. Have a forester look at it. Have a logger look at it. Um, mark trees with them. I, I can't tell you how many horror stories I've had where like, a buddy of mine in Arkansas um, was working on a big savanna restoration, gorgeous savanna, like true remnant savanna, which is rare. And they went out and they marked all the leaf trees, like, hey, don't touch these trees. Well, then the forester and the logger came out and they thought they marked all the take trees. Oh, no. So they lost all their best trees from a miscommunication. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about something that's going to take hundreds of years to respond. So go out with your logger. Go out with, you know, if you have a biologist in your area, they'll mark timber with you and say, okay, we're, this is what we're moving and why, and then have those logs pay their way out of, their, out of off your property. And if you can make a little money on it on top of that, I mean, that's a pretty sweet deal and reinvest that back into more habitat. 
Yeah, this is awesome stuff. And, you know, at the beginning and throughout, you know, we've talked about, you know, landowners and private land and everything else. And there are a bunch of public land hunters sitting, uh, if they're, if they're still hanging around with us, if they still got, if they do have turkeys on the brain this time of year and they're still hanging with us, they're probably wondering, well, how does this apply to me? Uh, what, uh, you know, what does this, any of this have to do with me? I don't own any land. I don't lease any land. I hunt public land. Now, what I have to say about that is, you know, when I'm doing any kind of research, like going out of state or going to a different part of the, of my own state or anything, one of the top couple of questions that I ask either a, you know, a regional office or a biologist or a property manager is, you know, what kind of habitat projects do you have going on? on, you know, XYZ WMA or National Forest or just anywhere. And when they start rattling off, you know, things that they've done in the last couple of years on whatever property, I drop a pin on those properties because those are going to be places I'm going to check out because they're working on good habitat. And more often than not, you're going to, or you're more than likely going to find turkeys or even deer or just whatever, where they're doing the habitat projects versus the WMA, you know, down the road that hasn't had anything done to it except planted in a cornfield, you know, plant a cornfield or a, a food plot, you know, every year for the last decade. Uh, you know, I'm going to focus on uh, those habitat projects. And so all of this information that we've been talking about is is uh, is kind of ammunition, you know, uh, for for the hunter. Like I know what to look for now. I kind of know what kind of questions to ask. I know what to listen for when um, when these property managers or biologists, when they're telling me, you know, what's been going on. I know now what, you know, what they're talking about and what to kind of hone in on. Uh, so, you know, like I said, mostly this is, you know, for, you know, private landowners or uh, private private land hunters or just anything uh, to do with private land. But the, the public land hunters are going to benefit greatly uh, from all of this information. Um, I kind of mentioned food plots and, uh, and we'll kind of we'll leave this as our as our last topic, I guess. You know, food plots are... I don't, I don't really know how to describe them. They, uh, they're almost like the backbone of private land deer hunting anymore. Um, it seems like, and so let's say somebody that's all they can do. Okay. You know, I have this property, I either own it or I, uh, I lease it. And the only thing I can or am allowed to do is plant a food plot or create a food plot or food plots. What are there good food plots? Um, and what are they, um, and, uh, kind of give, give us your, your opinion or your guidance on if I have, if I'll, if I can only plant a food plot, what do I do? Yeah. Um, but before I give you that, I do want to add one thing to, to the public land listeners out here, out there. I hunt a lot of public land, you know, as well. And one of the things that's been hard in the past 10 years is wanting a lot of public lands want to do savanna restoration and want to do these open habitat restorations. And they've gotten a ton of blowback from the public. Um, and me as a biologist, I look at that and I'm like, oh, no, we're finally getting what we want. Like, no, this is a good thing. But anyway, I mean, that's bas- that's basically what I was looking or that's how I knew. Flatland, whatever the question. Yeah, uh, it's flatland. I guess some people in in Florida would call it hills as well. Um, it's not really. I wouldn't think enough to funnel deer. It could. There's some areas that that it could, 
But yeah, pretty much flat. Okay. With little rolling hills. So thick stuff. I mean, you, you think about a clear cut, a cut over uh, the the kind of area that you're talking about. I know. Uh, to be honest, like the the place the the place I hunted this morning, it's not a big huge area, but it's very similar. Just those, just that sage grass. It's not really a clear cut, but it's it's kind of yeah. got the same the same type of features. Um, so I know what you're talking about. And I do know that it, it does seem like in those type of areas, it, calling is a lot more effective. Um, and maybe it's just because of what you're talking about or what Matt said earlier, they can't see. So they got to come mm-hmm. right. Like they got to just, they got to yep. get there. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. Is that kind of, is that type of area where you, where you first, kind of started learning some actual rather than just going out and blowing on a grunt tube, you actually have kind of technique uh, with the way that you grunt. Did that question yeah, make sense? Uh, no, <laughs> sorry. I, I didn't really end it like a question. I ended it as a statement. Uh, so is that kind of like that type of area hunting that type of place? Is that where you feel like you've developed this technique? Yeah, if you mean like by the area, it had a lot of side cover. So a deer feels comfortable with cover that's pretty close as tall as them, maybe to their back and all. Uh, they feel real comfortable in that. Yep. And it is a lot harder for them to just like see like it is in open woods. You know, like Matt was talking about earlier, if a deer can stand at the edge of a, a hill or maybe it's a pine thicket or something or look in those woods and see if a deer is there and they're not coming you know so this type of area would be an area that you could call in and a deer couldn't necessarily see you they may have to come 20 you know 30 yards from where you're at to be able to see right where that grunting come from i gotcha all right let's talk about this story i want to hear the story about this and then we're gonna basically do the same thing let's just break down like kind of the the way that you called, the way that you did the whole thing. So I guess just start from the top, man. Man. Well, I ended up basically taking vacation for this week, and the wife wanted me to kill some deer because I haven't been killing deer. Managing your habitat that's going to create usage all year round as opposed to this food plot that maybe is going to get used for two months. Um, But if you got to, I'm going to say... Find something that's low, find something that's open, something that puts off flowers. And the real key to that is something that is not going to be invasive in your habitat. I can't tell you how many things that us as hunters have planted um, that have destroyed thousands and thousands of acres of habitat by accident. A big thing right now is this uh, miscanthus grass that is spreading throughout the southeast and was really you know pioneered by hunters. So find something like clovers that aren't going to be super invasive. They're not going to really walk out of your plot, but also they're going to provide what you want and what you need. And hopefully you see some turkeys on them and can get after them in the spring. Yeah. And, and, and going back to, it was early in the episode where you talking about the amount of food that's in, you know, proper habitat, you know, prescribed burns, uh, you know, an area that, that has, that regularly has burns. You're, you mentioned a thousand pounds an acre. There's no food plot in the world that could replicate uh, that amount of food. Um, 
And also, you know, going back to, you know, just having to put in so much effort to maintain a food plot. And uh, I can speak on this from experience because, you know, my dad loves to have a food plot. And, you know, he he likes to just go uh, sit out in a deer stand and just watch critters, you know, in the afternoons or just whatever. So he likes the food plot just because it brings stuff out there. And um, but the amount of work uh, to maintain a, like a good food plot, like let's say you just have 10 acres of, you know, at your disposal and you plant that 10 acres and you maintain a food plot on that 10 acres versus prepping that uh that 10 acres to burn or to have proper habitat uh you're looking at you know let's let's say when you do a burn what you're maybe doing a couple days a year worth of work you know uh, cutting your fire breaks um and and even on the years that you do burn it that burn takes a day you know less than a day so you know in that 10 acres you know with uh, with proper habitat, you can have ten thousand pounds of food. You know, with a thousand pounds per acre uh, in that in that area versus the food plot. You know, even planted in clover, like you suggested, it's it's night and day difference. You know, the amount of work uh, versus what you get out of that uh, area. Uh, another thing to consider there too is if you're a deer or a turkey, you know. I I try not to anthropomorphize animals. I try not to give them human tendencies, but sometimes it it, it helps, right? If you are, you know, going, traveling, Joey, and we both travel a lot, you get sick of eating the same thing over and over. You're like, I want to go home, like get a home cooked meal. Well, deer and turkey and and other animals, they they are preferential browsers. So they're going to eat different things. And, you know, they're going to look at this and say, oh, you know, uh, I need something else right now. So the more diversity you have on your landscape, you know, is the better. You know, a a good, you know, quotable wildlife statistic is like, hey, you know, you never really want any more than 10% of your habitat to be food plots. I would go further and say I want it even less than that. But the money that you spend on seed and stuff to maintain a food plot, I can stretch that miles further. Fire is cheap, you know, 40 bucks an acre once a year. Um, Going and doing TSI yourself is cheap. Hack and squirt, you need, you know, a spray bottle with, you know, 50% glyphosate and 50% water. And you can do do a lot of habitat work with that and an axe. Um, All these other tools are way cheaper than food plots. Sometimes they're a little bit harder because you got to actually get out there and hike your hills and, you know, stuff, but they're fun. And you see the land on a different level than if you're just making food plots. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I encourage, you know, everybody, you know, like in my situation, I've got an old family farm and uh, dad still calls the shots around there. And I finally convinced him, you know, that not mowing is, you know, is actually good for, is actually good for the property. And then I was able to convince him that, Hey, you know, burning is good for the property. And this is what we could have at this place. And I think there are a lot of people in that situation, you know, either, like I said, with old family farms, family property, or, uh, leased farms, leased properties. Um, it takes, it takes a lot of convincing sometimes and a lot of education and people need to be a little bit more open-minded versus, you know, what they've seen on the Outdoor Channel 
and, you know, shooting deer and turkeys off of green fields all the time. So, Jeremy, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on here and, and chatting uh, habitat and turkey habitat and all things in between. Tell everybody where they can find you in the Southeast Grasslands uh, Institute on socials and uh, how to get how to get the ball rolling uh, on their own property. Yeah, so you can find us at Southeastern Grasslands Institute on all on Facebook and Instagram. Um, we've got a great website at segrasslands.org. Um, and you, you're always welcome to, to look me up on socials as well, Jeremy French, anywhere you go. Um, or hit me up on email at jeremy.french at segrasslands.org. Um, and if I'm not in your area, I bet and I can connect you to someone that's going to be able to help you out with any of your habitat needs. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And, uh, if anybody wants, you know, I've kind of mentioned here and there about, uh, the work that, that Jeremy did on my property, uh, this past year. And if uh, anybody has any questions about that, from my point of view, from a landowner's point of view, uh, they're more than welcome to reach out to me too. Uh, and, uh, I'll help you any way I can. I'll more than likely just direct you to Jeremy <laughs> anyway, but, uh, you can, uh, you can reach out to me and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll help you out. But, uh, Jeremy, thanks again for coming on. Uh, and uh, for the rest of you guys, stay tuned. We're going to have, uh, we'll have more turkey stuff throughout the winter before we really crank it up uh, in the springtime. We got other stuff in the works uh, for the winter to, to pass the time in between uh, y'all's uh, deer hunts. But uh, y'all stay with us and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks. <laughs>